Hello, and welcome to another edition of God's Unfolding Promise to Renew the Whole Creation, the official podcast for Grace Lutheran Church Confirmation Class. Well, today we actually hit upon the longest chapter in Manna and Mercy, chapter 9, Home Again. So the people have been in exile, and now they are returned to the land, and this chapter begins with a couple of stories uh, that I think Dan Erlander uses from the Bible. And there's two books in particular that kind of cover the the history of this era, and that is the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, there's a good chance that you've probably never heard of those, and that is perfectly fine. It's, there are two books that don't get a whole lot of sort of time in, in worship. I think there's maybe a, a reading or two from each one once every three years. So, and if you happen to be out that Sunday, well, you wouldn't hear it for the next six years or the or three years after that. Uh, so it is quite possible that the reading from Ezra and Nehemiah would be new. But one of the things that Dan kind of talks about here is the idea of the people when they come back, figuring out who is sort of a true Israelite or who, who truly is uh, a part of the people. Um, exile took those who were kind of of the elite into exile. There's a good chance it took a lot of the, the kind of the trade class, uh, people who could make pottery, um, who had some kind of artistic, uh, trade, blacksmiths, those kinds of things. But it most likely did not include everybody. And so now the people come back. The land is not completely empty. There are still people who are living there. Uh, some of those people have probably taken advantage of the fact that the, those who were there have left. I mean, there's kind of a vacuum there, so there are perhaps tracts of land that are now occupied that were once owned by an individual. Uh, there are houses that were left empty because the people are no longer there, so I'm, you know those have probably been occupied. And within the 70 years or so that they were in exile, there's been a lot of rearranging because there were still people there. So they come back, and now the question really becomes, who are the true sort of people of God? Is it the people that went into exile, or is it the people that remained in the land? And the way that the Bible kind of comes down on this is to say that it was really probably the people who stayed in exile, and they kind of make sure of that. But as they kind of come back into the land, there's still maybe some familiarity with the people that are there, and that's where you get this whole thing with Ezra and needing to kind of put out foreign wives. And I know that sounds harsh, and that really sounds like a very limited concept. And a little bit later on in this chapter, I think uh, Dan Erlander also talks about purity becoming a big important uh, piece of what it meant to be Jewish. Uh, and where I think they're on the bottom of page 36, he says the absolute norm for living as a true people of God were the purity laws of the Old Testament. And because of that, we have a tendency to kind of characterize Judaism, which has led to kind of a lot of anti-Semitism and in, in some ways probably didn't lead directly to the Holocaust, but made the idea of the Holocaust a little bit easier. 
And to be perfectly honest with you, Martin Luther, the very founder of the Lutheran Church, had some really horrible things to say about the Jewish people, um, which largely kind of get ignored, but probably sh really should be acknowledged and labeled as sort of anti-Semitic as for what they are. So this is no way is meant to kind of excuse Luther or anything like that. So we do, as Christians, we do have a problem, I think, at times with sort of anti-Semitism, either a very explicit form or kind of an implicit, uh, which I would kind of classify as supersessionism, where now Christians have become kind of God's chosen people. And that's problematic on a number of levels. But one of the things we really need to remember when we read the Bible is this idea of location. Perhaps you've heard, uh, you know, sort of the mantra of real estate agents, or real estate is location, location, location. And I want to say kind of the same thing when we read the Bible. We need to understand what our location is as we are reading the Bible. And our location is as people outside of its context. Uh, we live at a very far distance from sort of ancient M Middle East. Uh, ancient Jordan and Fertile Crescent and all of that. Uh, I mean, that's a all-day plane trip. We live, uh, our cultures are very different, and there is a great separation of time. I mean, it's 2,000 years since Jesus died, uh, and a lot has happened in 2,000 years. So, in terms of kind of the location, 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 in each sort of segment, we can say it's far, far, and far. And so, so when we read it, we need to kind of keep that in mind. We need to remember that the Bible is not, was not written for us. We are not kind of the intended audience of most of the stories, or all the stories pretty much, within the Bible. That doesn't mean that they're useless to us, or that we can't read them or take meaning from them, but we just need to remember that we are dealing with a different culture, a different time, and a different people um, as we read this. And the other piece in this, in this idea of location is social location. And ancient Judah is in a very different place than we find ourselves in North America. In North America, most of us are solidly kind of in the middle class, uh, we're, we live in a nation that is one of the most powerful on the planet. Um, our military, our finances, our sort of standard of living are right there towards the top. Um, we really want for very little. Uh, we have command of a large majority of the Earth's resources, especially in comparison with the size of our population, etc., etc. So we are really kind of part of the dominant culture of the world. And when we read a story like Ezra, and like some of the other purity laws, from that perspective, it can really be problematic. It can seem, especially if we kind of place Judaism in that same spot, because now it really seems like in that the intent is to be very exclusive, to, to limit who is truly a people of God and who isn't. But our social location is very different than that of the ancient Hebrews. The ancient Hebrews had just come back from exile. They are now at the whim of the Persian Empire. So it's not like they won their freedom 
they have been granted their freedom by another one of the, sort of the, the big deal empires, as I think how Dan refers to them. And this is just one of the big deal empires in the long succession of others. So after this one, there will be the Greek, and then you get the Maccabeans, but really they kind of do their, they model the big deal empire, and then you get the Romans. Um, and so the, the, the Hebrew people were in a very different location, and they are coming back after having spent 70 years in exile. And they understand that the people who are still there within their land are no longer part of them. They may have some of the same descendants even, but because of the separation of these two cultures, they have developed separately, and they have come to believe different things, probably even uh, about God, because exile was sort of a key moment in the history of sort of monotheism and of ancient Judaism and what would later become Christianity. And as it, and, and so there is sort of this threat uh, of social pressure, of kind of like, think of it as peer pressure, a, a threat to h how do we maintain our identity in this great sea of people who are vastly different to us? How do we maintain our identity when we have very little say on what that identity looks like? When we have no say of who can be our king or who can be our ruler? That's all coming from Persia. Uh, we have no say in how sales and how we shape a lot of our culture, especially you know that public face of the culture. And so how do we maintain our identity? And one of the ways to do that is to essentially live differently than the people around us. And that begins by sort of adopting some of these purity laws. Uh, things like circumcision probably become a big part, either a little bit earlier when they're in Babylon or now, where all male Hebrews are to be circumcised as sort of a marker of their identity. Now, there are other cultures that practice that as well, but it becomes sort of a marker of their identity. Uh, some of the purity laws, the way that they uh, approach foods. You know, for example, pork is not a food that you can eat if you're following the kosher regulations. Um, meat and dairy are to be separate, so no cheeseburgers or no bacon double cheeseburgers. Those are off limits. It, it sounds... I think at times to us, kind of as a very sort of limiting or very harsh, uh, trying to strive for kind of a righteousness that maybe we, we don't really have or think that we can claim. But when you are sort of a minority population in amongst m dominant populations, it becomes something uh, much different. This becomes an identity marker. I mean, just think about it. If you can no longer eat a sort of a bacon double cheeseburger at school, and that's what they're serving that day, that's going to make you stand out. It's not meant to necessarily make you stand out to others. I mean, it will if you advertise the fact, but that wasn't the point of these parity laws either. It wasn't to make others say that, oh, see, I'm better than you because I don't eat dairy product and meat products at the same time. No, it was... It is there as a reminder to who you are as sort of an individual and to which community you belong. And that is where a lot of these purity rules kind of come in. And I think that is what this Ezra 10 that Dan kind of takes exception to is also coming to play. Uh, ancient 
the ancient Hebrews were most likely a matrilineal uh, society. In other words, descendancy was determined by the woman, the mother. Um, so if your mother was Jewish, you were Jewish. If your father was Jewish, but your mother was Persian, you were Persian. And so in a matrilineal society, the men in that culture need essentially uh, to marry the women of that culture if you're going to maintain kind of that the, the integrity of that community. So if you want the Jewish community or the Hebrew community to remain filled with Hebrews, you need to essentially marry and have children with a Hebrew woman. The advantage of a matrilineal uh, society for a small um, nation or minority people is that it doesn't matter who your men marry. So that if you, if a Hebrew or, or who marries, it doesn't matter who. Sorry, it doesn't matter who your women marry or are sort of raped by, or if you're, there's probably still slavery and many of, and how many Hebrew women were had been sold into kind of slavery and so were forced into kind of some kind of sex work. Um, the children of all of those kinds of relationships, whether something they intended or something forced upon them, would now technically be Hebrew because it is a matrilineal society and brought into the Hebrew community. So it does kind of allow for that ex that expansion of the Hebrew people. And so it's maybe not quite as harsh as the way that Dan puts it. It is a way of helping a minority population within who has very little control over many of the things within their lives maintain a little bit of that control to set themselves apart from those around them to maintain their identity as as hebrews as the very people of god we will talk a little bit more about this at our next class which is the sunday but i think hopefully this at least gives you a little bit of an introduction and a little bit and allows you to see kind of beyond some of the anti-Semitic pieces that have sometimes crept into Christianity in the way that we often characterize the Jewish people. And I think it's important to remember that the Bible is sometimes, I, the Bible's writing in a very polemical way against sort of the Jews, not because they're trying to suppress or oppress Judaism, but in the most of the authors of the Bible are in fact Jewish, so this becomes kind of an inter-tribal affair as they're trying to make their point, where, and that's kind of that last piece of location, where most of us as readers of the Bible in the present day are not Jewish. And so it, and if we incorporate and, and don't keep that in mind, then I think the Bible becomes much more anti-Semitic, especially the New Testament, than, than we could possibly charge in and of itself, as many of these struggles were sort of inter-Jewish struggles, because we need to remember, after all, Jesus himself is just as Jewish as any of the others. And Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, or the majority of the New, New Testament, uh, that come from is Paul, 
who himself claims to be a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He never gives up his Jewish identity to convert to Christianity, but remains Jewish throughout all of his writings. And when we remember that, when we remember that the Bible is sort of was not written for us, that we are outsiders reading it, I think it helps us to dis dispel some of these bad tendencies that perhaps have crept in over the years to what it means to read the Bible and to be Christian.